The title of my message today is The Heart of Contentment. I'm actually almost done with the book of Philippians. I'll have one more passage to you in the coming weeks, and then I'll have to find a new book. So I'm kind of praying through what I'm supposed to bring to you guys next. The message today is The Heart of Contentment. And this is such an interesting topic uh, because, I mean, being content is such a relative thing, right? Some of us are more content in certain seasons or in certain situations than others. And so it's such a relative thing. Some are asking in this world how they'll save up enough money to buy their very first family car. And others are debating in their minds, maybe a second or a third or upgrading their vehicle. And even others have a collection of all sorts of sports cars. Meanwhile, others don't have enough cash to get on the bus daily. Some don't think twice about the bill at the grocery store and buy whatever's on their appetite to purchase for the week for them and their families. And others are penny-pinching, trying to figure out how they're going to feed every mouth in their home. And even others have personal chefs, and they're eating like kings on the daily. You could be content in any of those situations. But also, meanwhile, there's others finding food in the dumpsters. But who's to say that a person is actually content? Who's to be the judge? Who's to determine if someone's heart is or is not greedy? Who's to determine what that threshold is for proper contentment? This isn't something we can quantify or calculate in our minds, right? How can we be judges of what's going on inside inside man's heart? We just can't. I mean, yeah, I can take notes on the cars you drive. Yeah, I can take notes on on the, the toys you possess or the food you eat, the clothes and the jewelry you wear. I can pay attention to that. I can see the number of vacations you and your family may take on the year. But again, even if I can quantify some of that, there's two things. One, it's not my role. And two, it's hard enough to regulate that virtue in my own life. So I should just keep my mouth quiet. I mean, let's be honest. I'm going to be a little silly here, but I'm going to tell on myself. When I am at the drive-thru of Mickey D's, here is what I am not thinking. I'm not thinking, you know, Juan Carlos, you only need five of those 10 nuggets you bought. And you don't need the Coke. You could just get a water. That's it. That's enough for you. Be content with, you should probably just chill with that. No, I'm not thinking that. When I'm at the drive-thru of McDonald's, here's what I'm thinking. Uh, I will have the number 10 chicken nugget meal with a large Coke. And could you add a couple extra barbecue sauces in there? And, oh, yeah, uh, I can't just have chicken nuggets. i got to diversify my meal options. So I'm going to get a burger, too. Could you put a McDouble on there? No, never mind. Not just a McDouble. I need that second uh, layer of cheese. Give me a double cheeseburger, please. And, oh, i got to plan ahead. So and when I'm done with my meal and I'm done with my Coke, i got to have dessert, right? So i got to get a Sunday or a McFlurry. Give me a McFlurry, and you can just make it a small one. The large one, I don't need that. Just give me the small McFlurry, and silly me. I forgot to supersize it. Could you supersize that for me, please? Right? Like, when I'm at McDonald's, I'm, like, thinking through how I'm going to feast for the next couple of hours. There's no contentment when you're getting dinner from a fast food restaurant. There's no contentment with the things that we love that have immediate effects on our lives, mainly food sometimes. But from food to means of transportation to our sneakers and our clothes, I mean... We struggle with the equipment we get, the sports equipment we get, the toys we have as men and women and young adults. Like We struggle with those things, and those are the small things, the least important issues, those things. We struggle with that. So if we struggle with material things, if we struggle with the things that are extremely pleasurable to us, that has to be a sign that for sure 
We're struggling with discontentment with the larger, more important, even spiritual things, things of our faith. And so today, as I've said many times before, will you be willing to tell on yourself like I did about my McDonald's order? Are you willing to tell on yourself where you know you are discontent when you shouldn't be? Will you talk to God in an honest way? Will you say, as Scott has said many times, will you examine your faith in a way that will drive you to change? Paul has some really encouraging and clear instruction on contentment for us. And my hope and my prayer is that we can all move forward together as a church, Root River Church, all of us, men, women, children, together, moving forward, deciding that we will aim toward living up to Paul's example, to the disciples' example, Jesus' example, in a way that catches the eye of an unbeliever. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your love, your mercy, and your grace. I thank you that uh, we're here today. We get to worship you uh, without any worry. I thank you that you've provided for us, and you're taking care of each and every one of us. Lord, I am asking for humility and and peace in all of that's going on in the world right now, and that this morning as we go through this passage, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to what you would have for us to say. In Jesus' name we said, amen. Awesome. So let's get to the passage. We're in Philippians 4, 10 through 13. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That first verse, but I rejoice, that word rejoice, in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived, that word revived, your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before but you lacked opportunity. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background about this. You have to remember, we should remember that 10 years have passed since Paul was with this church in Philippi. 10 years have passed. And this church, over the years, had made it a habit to support him financially. They had made it a habit to take care of him, subsidizing portions of his missionary journeys all across the towns and the cities. They supported him in transition from ministry to ministry. And we find that in 2 Corinthians, this is what he says. Paul is telling them that this church, the Philippian church, gave them what he needed so he wasn't going to have to be a burden on the church in Corinth. And for whatever reason, at some point, their support for Paul had ended. He says, now at last you have revived your concern for me. It started up again, and so that ignited something new in Paul, that something was going on in the Philippian church. That word revive means to shoot up, to sprout or bloom again, to flourish. It's a word in Greek that's used to describe a barren tree that's changing from winter to spring. For the first time in 10 years, Paul gets this care package from his friend Epaphroditus, his partner in ministry from this church that he had an intimate relationship with, this church that loved him greatly with support. It had finally revived, and so he rejoiced greatly. And though he says concern, I have to believe it's safe to say that it's a little something a little deeper. And so it says Paul rejoiced greatly. When he got that gift, it had melted his heart. 
This concern was much deeper than I'm thinking about them. It was uh, intentional. It followed. It was followed with action. It, it moved him so much. It melted his heart. He noticed something radically different. And it's a much more virtuous reason. Paul is overwhelmed with joy because he's seeing maturity in his church. He's seeing a change, a growth in people that he loved, in people that he taught. He's seeing generosity without any prompting. He's seeing thankful, authentic, and concerned givers in his church. This joy, this joy that Paul has is a different type of joy. This kind of joy is unique to the Holy Spirit. It's not because Paul got something. It's not because his satisfactions were met, that his cravings were satisfied. He was seeing Jesus alive in the people he had so heavily invested in. It was proof that Jesus, like Paul had said earlier in chapter one, that Jesus was still at work in them. Jesus hadn't abandoned them. He's saying, look at you go. What you did right there wasn't just for me. It was because you have a genuine faith and love for a a, a man that came to this earth to die for your sins. And that is proof right there. This right here, this sentiment that Paul has, this perspective that Paul has about his church, isn't just for the Philippians. It was for all the churches he planted while he was alive. And it's the same sentiment he would have for us here. So church, he's he's laying down hints for us that contentment is not tied to our circumstances. But if I have to be honest, from what I see in myself and what I see in others, this concept is very foreign to us. And it must change. So moving on, we recognize that Paul is super thoughtful. He's, He's super intentional in every one of his letters and everything that he says. He knows that his words could be misinterpreted. Right, So he's writing this letter. He says something. It could be controversial. And because he's thoughtful enough to make sure he's clear that he's not misinterpreted and that it's not come off the same in a way that he's not intended, he says, indeed, you were concerned before, but you just lacked opportunity. Paul wants to be heard correctly so that you're not stumbling, no one else is stumbling. And so just in case any people might think that this is a criticism of Paul, that they stopped giving or that he's money-hungry, he reaffirms some truth about their position. He affirms some truth about what they're going through, so no one has the need to be defensive. They're off the hook, right? Paul turns to their defense before they can even go there. And I just want to pause. If Imagine if that's how our conversations went. We're so concerned that even in, when I'm encouraging you, when I'm praising you, when I'm giving you positive information, that I'm concerned that you may take it a different way. So I clarify always. Imagine if our conversations went like that on a daily basis. Paul runs to their defense. And even though he doesn't explain what it means by the words lacked opportunity, we can narrow down the potential reasons. And so honestly, what's most likely a reason for their Uh, lack of giving or their lacked opportunity is because either Paul became less accessible in the prison he was in, or they just didn't have access to messengers. That's probably most likely what he means. But there's some things I do want to point out that I found in my reading, and it's found in 2 Corinthians, and it's this. Paul says to this Corinthian church, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. That's where Philippi is. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. 
So prior to this gift from Epaphroditus, after 10 years of silence maybe, it's possible that they simply didn't even have the money to give them in the first place. But what's great is that they clearly got to a point in their faith where finances did not matter. What mattered more was being connected to Paul, was supporting their friend, making sure the people they were doing life with or had done life with were taken care of. It clearly outweighed their financial and social situations. And we we have to get there. And so here's what I want to say to you. What I want to say is that I have to believe that I know that you want to experience Jesus in a different way. I have to believe that. And I think deep down, each of you does want to know Jesus in a newer, more sincere, more severe, more direct way. I know that you crave a joy that we hear about at church all the time. I know that we crave a joy that will pull me out of anxiety and out of these things that I'm feeling. This joy that's written all over scripture. I have to believe that each of you crave that. And if you want your life to grow, you want to see change, you want to be better, you want to get your life in a new space, then you really need to just align yourself with the model that God has created. That's where we start. We start with the model God has set up for his people. And one part of that model is being right here at your church. We can start here, right? The fellowship of believers. And if honestly, if it's not here at River Church, that's okay, what we really want you to be is in a place where you're hearing God's word in the right way and worshiping according to it. Be where the word of God is preached and that you worship him in the right way there, whether it's here or somewhere else. But you need to be in a church plugged in consistently. That's a start. I feel like the harder parts of God's model include repenting of our sins, which is a really hard thing to do, changing our habits, spreading the gospel, ridding ourselves of foul speech, and the list continues, humbling ourselves and putting others first. That's also part of God's model. But this one, being involved at church, that's not hard. That's not hard at all. And you know what? Honestly, it quite benefits you a bunch. This is where you can start. So I want to tell you this. My first point is be reconnected with the people of God. And it's fitting because of what's going on in 2020. There's a lot of dividing and there's a lot of isolation. And if I could encourage you with anything this morning to start, it's get reconnected. You can meet. This is what it looks like. Getting reconnected looks like this. Setting up lunch, setting up play dates with your kids, calling one another, encouraging one another, talking about what you talked about at Bloom or the men's Bible study or what Pastor Scott said. We know that getting reconnected is difficult, though especially in 2020 because of the season. And so what we're doing here at Root River Church as a staff and as a board is we're doing our best and we're working on creating spaces for you to get reconnected. That's why we have a men's and women's Bible study. Start there. Bloom in men's Bible study. That's why we have things like life groups that are starting in the fall. Easy ways to get connected. You need to renew, renew your concern for other believers. And I pray that that becomes a priority in your life in this next season. That's part of God's model. All right, verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Even though Paul doesn't really need to defend himself here, he's talking to people he loves and people who love him. So there's no judgment. This is a safe zone. 
He doesn't really need to defend himself. He says these things because he knows we need to see it and hear it in order to learn. I feel like oftentimes Paul doesn't need to say it because he needs to be heard. He says it because he knows that's how we learn. So he says, not that I speak from want. That word, that word want, it's the same word want that Jesus uses when he addresses his disciples in Mark 12. It's a short story, but the religious leaders had tried to trap Jesus again. They tried to trap Jesus in his words and in his teachings, and they found this really good opportunity to do it in front of a whole bunch of people. And as Jesus was sitting with his disciples after teaching them and kind of correcting them in a really loving way and preaching God's word, after seeing that and saying that he sits down with his disciples and just observes the crowd, he's just watching. And among all the rich people, as they're giving their offerings, there's this one who's a known widow, and he notices that she only gives two coins. And it says says that it didn't even amount to anything, but Jesus says to his disciples, that she gave out of her want. And the word there that he uses is poverty. She gave out of her poverty. She gave everything she owned, even though it wasn't even valuable, two cents. She gave it. So Paul uses the same word, and it means poverty, and he's admitting, if you can read between the lines, that that's his situation too. I am in poverty, but that's not why I'm saying this to you. I am poor right now. I do not have a lot. He's admitting that he's got nothing. And he continues, For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. This word, whatever, should be taking root in your minds right now, really, because a few weeks ago I preached on a passage where Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think of such things. Paul said in that passage, whatever, six times. And we came to the conclusion in those whatevers, in that message, that it wasn't that we should ponder on only the positive things in life and fill our minds with rainbows and unicorns. No, but he was saying, fill your minds with all the things, whatever it may be, that will bring you to action so that others may see Jesus Christ in you. And so in the same way, Paul says, whatever. And he's saying three things. One, that he has experienced just about every positive and negative life circumstance. Two, he's saying he survived them. And he could survive, he could survive them again. And the last thing he's saying is, so, so can you. you. You can be on that path. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am, past, present, or future. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any, in every circumstance, in whatever circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Now, there are some of you here this morning that are living in extreme abundance, but you want more. You've blurred the lines between wanting and needing something. You, you haven't allowed God to mold every aspect of your life, including your finances and your thoughts about your finances. Some of you aren't using your abundance to meet people's needs in and out of the church or to further the gospel. You have things and you crave more of them. You're living the American dream. 
You're building your family, you're building your home, you're, you're crafting your yard, expanding your territory, and you're expanding your treasures. But you're expanding your treasures and not storing up treasures in heaven. How much more do you need? Perhaps you only need it because you've not learned what it is to be content. On the other end, there are some of you here that in suffering need, you don't have a nice home or nice cars or nice toys. You're not able to store up treasures and toys for you on this earth right now, for you and your family. You don't have disposable income. You don't have a big family, lots of children. Your parents didn't support you through college, and you had to do it on your own. And you're complaining about why you don't have better. You're frustrated with God because the struggle is extremely real. And there's all these things that you can't have right now and you hate it and you're stuck staring into the windows of others' lives and all you can think about is getting more and getting out. You want those things. Perhaps you're stuck because you've not learned what it is to be content. The word Paul uses for content is a word that Greek philosophers known as the Stoics often used. It's a word that means self-sufficient. And Paul uses it, but I feel like he uses it in the same way. For the Stoics, this word, autarkes, it's the core of their message that you don't need outside forces to produce happiness in your life. That you can be self-sufficiently happy. That's like their life model. You're strong enough to do the things that you want and overcome things all by yourself with no support, without no help, without anything. I can do it on my own. For the Stoics, you also don't allow things like the desire for pleasure or the fear of pain to influence your decision-making or to dictate your livelihood. The Stoics were about removing the emotional responses of things. And so Paul uses the same word that they use. For Christians, this system of logic that the Stoics had, this personal ethics that they possess, can be really problematic for us. It poses an issue because if you are enough, then you have no need for Jesus Christ in your life. I love what Paul is doing because he's taking a word that the people are so familiar with in their culture and he's flipping it upside down. Instead of saying you should be content because you are enough or because you have enough, he says whether you have enough or not, you do have Jesus Christ in your life. Now, I know that seems like the really Christian thing to say. The answer is always Jesus. In elementary and middle school, at at Christian schools, kids are joking about, the answer is Jesus. Like It seems like that response. But Paul says, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And so we have to ask, what in the world is the secret? And if it's so important, why wouldn't it just be laid bare for us to know from the get? Apparently, this secret is the key to me abandoning all my wants and all of my desires. It's the key to me letting go of any pressure to be something that God has not called me to be or isn't even willing for me to be. It's the secret to casting off all of my self-centeredness and selfish desires and my needy attitude. And here's the secret. It's literally in the next verse. The secret is that I can do all of those things through Christ who strengthens me. This verse is so widely used, especially in sports, and I want to talk about it for a little bit. Coaches and teachers from elementary school and t-ball on have used this passage. Brother, you can do all things who Christ who strengthens you. We've heard it a million times. Talking to athletes and their kids in the classroom. 
You can do it. You can do all the things. You can run a little faster. You can jump a little higher. You can bench press even more weight. You can do anything you set your mind to. You have God on your side. God can help you win. We have to remember that Paul isn't writing this letter from a championship trophy room. He's writing this letter from prison. He's not writing it from a hotel. After all he's been through and all he's experienced and is currently experiencing, there is no way on this earth he's telling his church that they can do anything or get anything, win anything, prosper in anything, just because God has their back. There's no way that's what Paul means. The stress of life can be extremely overbearing and cause our minds and lead us to paths that are not in alignment with God's path. We've become too accustomed to times of plenty. We've become too accustomed to prosperity that we don't really know how to live in times of misery and adversity. Similar to the Stoics, Paul says our level of contentment shouldn't sway in the wind of circumstance. And if I can pause for a second, I feel like 2020 has exposed Christians a lot. I feel like 2020 has, in the men's Bible study, we were talking about Job and how the devil went to God first and said, I bet you if I can get him, if I can just get this to Job, I bet you he'll stop worshiping you. And so God let him. And I don't know if that's the case or not for 2020, but if it was, would we be responding like Job? It doesn't seem like it. I feel like we're swaying. We're divided. What Paul is saying with this word, he's saying whether high or low, this or that, rich or poor, good or bad, God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Whether you have food or not, I am there. Whether you're broke or thriving, I am there. Whether you're happy or sad, I am there. Whether you have a job or you're jobless, I am there. Whether you have a man or you don't have a man, I am there. Whether you have a wife or you don't have a wife, I am there. Children or no children, prison or free, whatever your circumstances, whether we're in a democracy or not, whether we have to wear masks or not, he says he will never leave me or forsake me. I am there and I have not left you, God says. So why in the world would I be swayed? Here's what this verse means. It means you can persevere. You can grow. You can be healed. You can stand the test. You can give sacrificially because I am with you and I will give you the strength. Not because you are enough, but because of what he says in Galatians 2.20. It is not me, but Christ who lives in me. I think back to my time as a little league slugger and all my coaches. I had good high school coaches, but... I think back to my elementary and middle school coaches, and I just think about the way that they use Philippians 4.13 to push us to win better, to do better, and get all the glory, to hit home runs, and steal bases, and we're talking about football, getting touchdowns, hitting harder, tackling better. You can do it, Juan. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And in the moment, I was like, yeah, I got Jesus. Yeah, I got God. He's on my side. And, you know, you go for it. But I think about... That whole dynamic of coaches. And if Paul were my coach, here's what I think he would have said instead. He would have coached us to say this. After training my guts out and giving my everything on game day, I can live with either being the winner or the loser. Regardless of what's on the line, I can play by the rules. I don't need to cheat because cheating is self-serving. Win or lose, I can genuinely treat coaches, the officials, the opposite team, my teammates, the league. I can treat them with love and respect, and I can be thankful regardless of the outcome, all because of the strength I possess as a follower of Jesus. 
We need coaches like that. We need dads like that. We need moms like that. We need teachers like that. Don't teach children to be self-serving. Teach your children to give, uh, to give their all in whatever the return to give God the glory. The secret Paul is talking about is that Jesus provides him with the strength to be poor and the strength to be rich, whatever it is. doesn't matter. But it's a secret. It can't be a secret. I mean, it's all over Scripture, especially Paul's letters. He says everything about God's strength. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. First Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. 2 Timothy 2.1, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.11, be strengthened with all power so you have endurance and patience. He doesn't say be strengthened in all power so that you can be the best guitar player at your church or drummer at your church or baseball player on the field. He says so that you have endurance and are patience and have patience through trials, whether good or bad, rich or poor. And then lastly, in 2 Timothy, Paul says this, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. And it was all for one goal. The Lord stood by him and strengthened him so that the gospel could be proclaimed. My last message was about Christian witness. And this whole book, I can promise you, is about your Christian witness. How people see you day to day. Are they seeing Jesus or are they seeing the ugly version of you? So the heart of contentment doesn't come from knowing what we have, but comes from knowing who we have. Contentment is a learned skill, not an an innate virtue. It's not something you're born with. Content people take their portion humbly, whatever it may be. They take their daily bread at whatever amount, from crumbs to full loaves. You take what's given to you by God himself. There's absolutely an art to this, and it has to do with taking hold of truth in your mind. It's something you know, and it's something you have. It's not something comes out of nowhere. You can access this stuff. We have to put it into action. So today, I want to remind you all that Paul has shown us, the truth that he gave the Philippian church. If Paul says he's this way because he learned it, then all the more you can do what he's doing just by learning the same. And so I compiled a list of of statements that Paul has given us in the book of Philippians that if we would just act on every single one of them on a daily basis, you would see the most change and revival, just like the Philippian church had in your life than ever before. Chapter 1, Paul says, God turns loss into gain. The Spirit of Jesus works to save us in peril. Suffering is a gift from God with a good purpose. The worst shuddering for Christ is actually gloriously rewarded. Those are four massive virtues that, if, in chapter 1 that if we just put them into action, we would see drastic change in our lives. Chapter 2, he says, In all our working, God is working in us and for us, not against us. He says, The absence of grumbling, which is the same as contentment, is a sign that you are a child of God. Death in the service of Christ's people is an occasion of rejoicing. Risking your life is a truly honorable thing. These are all things that are quoted and pulled directly from chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 3, in all my struggles to hold on to Christ, he has already taken hold on me. Even though my body will wear out and die, Christ will come and give me a new one. We need to see Christians and need to be Christians living this out on a day-to-day basis. And something like the coronavirus or what's going on in the political realm cannot change these truths and virtues in us. 
Chapter four, all our joy is not finally in things, but in the Lord. I can pause. If you're looking for joy and you have not found it and, and you know what you have been running to, rest assured it hasn't been Jesus if you haven't found it. Because if you were looking for joy in Jesus, you would have found it. That's a fact. That's something we can learn. And that, that means that as we go forward, we're, we're educated to not look to things, but to Jesus. Next one, prayer and thankfulness in all circumstances release a peace from God beyond human mental ability to produce. Practicing humble servanthood toward others is the drawing near of the God of peace. And at the end of this book, you will have learned the following. This will be in my next message. God will provide you every single thing you need. I don't know how many all of that is, but that's chapters one through four of things that he has taught us. Yet we don't have content hearts. I don't understand that. I don't understand how we have the formula right here. I don't understand how we have been given the right sermons, the right worship leaders, the right teachers and leaders to share the gospel with us, and we have not changed moving forward. How can we see that these lights are the goal and I walk this way? I don't understand that. I know it's because we're fallible, and I know it's because we have a sinful nature. But that path away from the light leads to destruction and hurt and pain and anxiety and bitterness, and brokenness, if you find that in your life, the end goal is towards these lights right here. God has laid that path out already. Why have we not taken hold of that and walked toward it? And furthermore, Christians, if you see somebody down that path, your job's not to judge them. Your job's not to yell at them for being that way. It's to be concerned. Like Paul says, let your concern be revived. So you had that direction to go pull them back this way. You have everything you need to get to a place of real contentment in Jesus Christ. We just have to take it seriously. There's a lot of aspects of your faith, guys, and my faith. We just don't take serious. I don't care what my mouth says. It's not an immediate correction. There's not an immediate punishment. I can get away with it. We do things in private like no one knows. Our thoughts, no one hears that. We don't take any of that seriously because there's no consequence. But I want to tell you this morning, there is consequences. Your life can be better. You can create a stronger household. Your marriage can go way better. Your relationship with your children, your children, some of them are broken and you need to be the rock for them. And it's rooted in what we learn, not what we're innately born with. We must take it seriously. We must put it into practice, what we're hearing and reading in God's word. And so today you can make that change. Today you can be a better dad. Today you can be a better mom, son, sister, brother friend, neighbor, coworker, you can, you can be that change starting today. I don't care how you've lived up until this point, you can change today. You've just been given the right tools. You've just been given the right words. You have been informed and it's all dependent now how you move forward with it. Just put them into practice. And over time, you will see God accomplishing things in your life. And I'm telling you this from personal experience. I didn't talk to my dad for 10 years. Putting to God's word to practice, I started talking to him again. I see him every week. That is a fact. I was a broken kid who hated his dad, whose dad didn't treat him super well. And I left, didn't talk to him for 10 years. I was broken those whole 10 years. And over time, correction came to my mind from God. And he said, well, he's broken too. So who are you to judge him? And it broke my heart. And I called him immediately. I'm telling you this stuff from experience. I'm telling you this stuff from Paul's experience. He wrote it all. It is fact. It is real. It has happened. Why on earth would you ever run from what he has to provide? 
There's a passage that really captures how I feel like we haven't taken it as serious. There's a, there's a passage that I really like. It's in 1 Corinthians. This is what Paul says about him and the disciples. And he's writing to this church and he says, this is how I see. He says, to this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. And I got to be honest with you, there's not a time in my life where I felt this way. But that is the goal. We have to take it seriously, guys. And I know I'm not there, but we absolutely should be. So before we end today, in response to that charge from Paul to the Corinthian church, I want to give you a few tips to get you started in the right direction. They're simple. It's not super long, but there's three tips. The first tip for you to have a heart of contentment and to move forward taking this seriously is that you can't put knowledge into practice if the knowledge isn't there. Meaning this, get in your Bibles and read it seriously. Growing in your faith is not easy, but it's super simple. Start with what God has already spoken to you. Get in your Bibles. That's tip one. Tip two, there is no strength without its source. There is no strength without its source. You need to follow Jesus. And if you've made the decision already to follow Jesus and you've been following Jesus your whole life, then you need to continually pursue him. It's not about just saying, yes, I want to be a Christian. It's not about giving an initial prayer. It's about a daily walking of life with him, pursuing it daily, getting the daily bread, whatever the circumstances. Your source is completely important. Your source cannot be the internet, social media, whatever the government or the news sites are saying or journalists are spewing out. None of that can be your source. Your source has to be Jesus Christ. Here's a truth that I think is super relevant in 2020. There are more people reading stuff on Instagram, Facebook, and random news articles than there are reading a Bible. And if you can just analyze for yourself for a second, how many words of non-Bible have you read compared to words of the Bible? I've got to be positive. Every person in this room has their hand up for, yeah, I have not read the Bible as much as I've read anything else. Continually pursue Jesus. And then point three, this one's a little more practical, is you need to avoid comparison. You need to not see your neighbor, your friends, your sister, your brother, your parents. You need to see them and not feel like you have to compare how you're doing compared to them. Because the truth is, you both are doing bad at it. My comparison should be to God's word, his disciples, and to Jesus Christ. Are you following those people you're comparing yourself to? No, you're following Jesus. So one last time, I want to remind you, and you can find this in Hebrews 13 says this, but God himself has said to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. Are you taking captive of that? Are you holding on to the truth that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you? Hold tight to that this morning. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your your love, your mercy, and your grace. And and I'm so broken and frustrated that in my own heart, there's so much discontentment that there's so much eagerness and desire for more, that there's so much greediness and need and ugly perspectives that I have to fill me with more, that I am worth more than the people around me. I hate that that's in me, God. 
Correct that in me, Lord. We repent from that right now in this moment. Each and every one of us, God, we look to you to move forward and take this the same way that that Paul and the rest of the apostles had taken it. They would become the scum of the earth so that the gospel is spread. Lord, help us get there. Lord, there's some of us in the room right now that have not given our life to the Lord. We have not given our life to you. Not all of it. And so I'm begging you, Lord, that right now in this moment that they would see today as their moment to change. Today could be the day that they became the best mom for their kids, the best dad for their kids, the best husband or wife for their spouse. We're repenting from where we have been and where we have come from and turning towards you and getting right on the right path. Lord, give us a heart of being content and and help us to understand, God, and know that it's rooted in who you are, what you've done for us, and that it's something we must be taught. So help us to open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to be attentive to what you have called us to do, Father God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.